to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to episode four of our podcast regarding the business sports bench book. My name is Megan Adams. I am a judge on the Superior Court in Delaware. We are so happy that you have joined us for our podcast published by the American Bar Association. This fourth podcast focuses on ADR, and we are fortunate to be joined by the most experienced and respected judges and former judges in our country to discuss this topic. First, the Honorable Gail Andler. Judge Andler was a judge on the Orange County, California Superior Court for over 20 years. She served from 2007 until 2017 on its complex civil litigation panel. Judge Andler also served two terms as the presiding judge of the Superior Court's Appellate Division and is the past president of the American College of Business Court Judges. She is currently a full-time neutral with JAMS. Judge Andler has been praised by attorneys for her commitment to resolution and for her creativity. As a judge, she worked with parties to find common ground and create efficiencies in the legal process. Next, we have the Honorable Donald F. Parsons, Jr. Vice Chancellor Parsons is a former Vice Chancellor on the Delaware Court of Chancery, serving from 2003 to 2015, and a past president of the American College of Business Court Judges. Vice Chancellor Parsons now focuses on alternative dispute resolution, primarily arbitrations and mediations. In his ADR practice, the Vice Chancellor draws heavily on his past experience as a judge on the Court of Chancery and a litigator in state and federal courts dealing with various business and intellectual property disputes. Finally, we have the Honorable Joseph R. Slites III. Vice Chancellor Slites has served on Delaware's Court of Chancery since March 2016. From 2012 until his appointment, Vice Chancellor Slites was a partner at Morris James LLP, where he practiced corporate and business litigation and chaired the firm's Alternative Dispute Resolution Practice Group. Prior to that, he served a 12-year term as a judge on the Superior Court of Delaware, where he was instrumental in forming the court's Complex Commercial Litigation Division. Also on the line is one of my co-editors, Douglas Iyer, a partner at McAlpine PC in Auburn Hills, Michigan. In our last podcast, we discussed court adjuncts and appointments with Judge Yates. So today, we're going to jump right into our discussion regarding the unique challenges of mediating a business dispute. We're going to start with Judge Andler, and she's going to discuss with us um, understanding the process for approval and other challenges in a pre-mediation call. Judge Andler? Good morning, and thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects, how to clear the dockets for the judges of the cases that are waiting for them by getting an approval through mediation or other forms of alternative dispute resolution. How do you get them to come to you as a mediator? Well, first of all, the business court judges are usually very open to the request of counsel that a matter be deferred or delayed for a reasonable amount of time in order to get the matter into mediation. And many business court judges will include the question at their initial case management conference as to whether the parties 
have already engaged a mediator or whether the parties are pursuing settlement discussions. Once the parties select their mediator based on the subject matter expertise that they're looking for, as well as the experience level and style of the mediator, then it's important for the mediator to have a pre-mediation call to discuss with counsel what their expectations are. These days, many mediations are being done remotely through platforms such as Zoom. And so it is important to have an understanding upfront what the technology capabilities are of counsel as well as the party representatives and whether they, everybody has an understanding that the process will be conducted remotely. It's a good idea for counsel to even have an agreement uh, in writing uh, which stipulates that the mediation will occur on a remote platform. You should also have a discussion with your neutral as to what the security protocols are in place and have an understanding as to whether everybody will be put in the same room or separate rooms. Some business entities are very sensitive about confidentiality and uh, many platforms are HIPAA compliant these days. So depending on what the nature of the business is and its concerns about confidentiality, that's a good topic to cover in the pre-mediation call. When I do a pre-mediation call in a business divorce case, it's very important for me, as well as in any other case, to understand from counsel what the dynamics are, what doesn't make it into the mediation brief, as I say. Tell me the secret stuff. Uh, tell me who's going to be in the room. Are there any unique financial considerations, insurance coverage considerations, if you're lucky enough to have an insurance pocket that you can uh, look to? And also, what are the dynamics between the parties? Do you need to ensure that they don't even see each other? What's the story behind the story? And what are the interests that you can help address through mediation? Is there a creative business solution that might work? And uh, what levels of approval are going to be needed? Is it gonna to have to go back to a committee? Are you going to have the real decision maker in the room or on the phone? So all of these things can be explored and should be explored in a pre-mediation call in order to make sure the day is set up to be as successful as possible. It's not unusual in a business or corporate governance case for you to need uh, the approval of people who aren't there, but hopefully you're going to get everybody in the room that you need and hopefully get it done in one session. Post-mediation uh, follow-up will be important as well if it doesn't settle on the day. I know we'll talk more about that later. Okay, great. Thank you, Judge Andler. I'd like for Vice Chancellor Parsons to discuss some timing considerations. I know that we had discussed in our pre-call about a check-the-box mediation and maybe going back to that same person later on in litigation. And you also talked about um, coming to the mediation with a dream term sheet. I was hoping that you could cover those areas for us. All right. And uh, I always learn things from both of my colleagues uh, whenever we listen. And I've made a few notes even from... Uh, from Judge Andler, tell me the secret stuff, I think uh, gets to the point a lot more quickly than I usually do, I'm, I'm, so I'm gonna use it, and soon. Uh, but in terms of uh, the timing, it's very important to consider what the timing is, and the way I think about it, <clears throat> and this, I guess, really doesn't quite relate to the timing, is whether there is a contract or some sort of uh, obligation on the part of the parties to engage in mediation before they can sue. That was entered into back when everybody had rose-colored glasses about their uh, likely collaboration on some project or a purchase or whatever it was. 
And now that's fallen apart and they'd like to sue, but they can't. And so they have to go through mediation first. Uh, I always like to know if I am the mediator, whether that's the situation that I'm in, it poses uh, special challenges that maybe we'll talk about later on. Uh, But in some instances, the parties are merely going through the hoops uh, and getting their way to clearance so that they can settle. That doesn't mean that mediation can't be successful, but it's the different. It's much more challenging. Many differences there. But I also have situations, and I'm sure my colleagues do too, where the parties, before they file a suit, decide mutually that they want to go to mediation, either before a private attorney or uh, a former judge, a retired judge, or something like that. Uh, and that's excellent in terms of the payoff is so great at that point, they'll save so much money and so on. But the other challenge is that neither side has had the benefit of any discovery unless they've worked out something be- to have a limited information exchange or, or whatever. Uh, what I try to do in those situations is take advantage of the party's commitment to exploring a settlement option, uh, but also don't be too disappointed if you can't get to the finish line because it is possible uh, that you can make some progress, identify some issues, and maybe even identify a way forward to let them go ahead and litigate, but keep open the option of coming back to you at some point in the future. Uh, I'll also just mention that you we do have many instances where mediation comes in very early in the process, sometimes because the court ordered it. Again, that may impose the same challenges where the parties have not mutually agreed to come there. They're coming because the court ordered it. Uh, They will both try in good faith to get to a settlement there, uh, but they're not quite as highly motivated as when each one of them has decided on their own, this is what they want to do. But if they come in very early before there's been any significant discovery, um, that poses special challenges. You want to be looking at for ways that you can find a finite issue or two that might be almost like a gatekeeping issue that would, uh, if we could get focused on that or limited discovery on that or some some sort of a way, even an early uh, neutral evaluation might help out uh, there. Then the summary judgment stage, you've had uh, discovery, but you don't know what's going to happen in trial. At the trial stage, right before trial, you've spent most of the money, so uh, different issues. And then other, you know, mediation is still possible after the whole trial is over and before the, the, the appeal has run its course. So those are the different stages. They, you should be aware of what stage you're in. Uh, and what the um, whether you've got uh, asynchronous um, information. If there's been no discovery, one side knows a lot more than the other side does, and that poses challenges. Uh, lastly, on the uh, the point about bringing a dream term sheet, I tell the parties to um, uh, when they come into the lit- to the mediation. I think it's useful if they have already caucused themselves and put together on a page or two the key terms that they'd like to see coming out of a uh, a settlement if they succeed. One of them is always going to be the dollar amount, some dollars changing hands in one direction or the other. I, 
I'd leave the amount of dollars blank. And of course, they have in their head how important that is. But there are often subsidiary issues that are important. And when you get in the mediation itself, you you spend so much time on the number that by the time you find uh, finally reach agreement on the number, the parties are exhausted and ready to get out of there. Uh, but uh, they forget to raise the secondary release type issues that matter, other kinds of non-monetary issues that may be important to them. And then ultimately it's, it's common you'll have a heads of agreement or something like that uh, coming out of the mediation and there'll be a negotiation of a full-fledged settlement agreement later. If you have failed to raise it in the mediation, uh, you're, the mediator can't help you. It's just a straight up negotiation between you and the other side uh, as far as the final paper is concerned, the final agreement. Thanks. Okay, no, that's a great point. Thank you, Vice Chancellor Parsons. Thank I think you. I'd like, uh, go ahead, Vice Chancellor Slice, three please. Points, three points on, uh, on that. And first off, thanks to you and Vanessa and Doug for doing this. It's, it's awesome and, and a great benefit for our members. Um, as to Judge Andler's point on the pre-mediation call, I, I agree with Don. That's, that is a great point to try to pull out from them kind of the secrets, the behind the scenes, the, what, what you're probably not going to hear in the plenary session or even by counsel in front of uh, their clients. But I've also found that when counsel are together, we're not getting all of the secrets. So I usually tell counsel after the pre-mediation call to expect another call from me. And, and, and that's the call where I'm asking them the questions that I'd like to be able to ask them during the course of the mediation, but I know I can't because they're there in front of their clients and they're probably not ready to dish on what the background is and where they think the buttons are. So I found in advance of mediation, after you've read the mediation statement, that private calls to counsel are very helpful um, just to sort of get even more of the flavor. Uh, uh, Joe, yeah. Joe, uh, when you set those calls up, do you tell the, the counsel that you really are looking for a counsel only call, not with everybody who's gonna be present at the mediation? I do, yeah. So, so in the and joint it's the call, same thing that that I do that in, um, when I set them up initially. It's always with counsel only, not client representative, and I do them separately with each side. And I tell them that it's a confidential phone call, meaning I will not raise anything we talk about in front of their clients in session, nor will I, of course, tell the other side because it's important to me that they speak freely about such things as client control. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's that's key, I think. It, it is that opportunity. I mean, at every point in a mediation, I think mediators have a moment where they wish they could just pull counsel out of the room and have a private conversation. And sometimes you're able to pull that off. Oftentimes you're not because it's there's just not a comfortable moment to extract them from the client. Um, but if you can do some of that in advance, I think I think that's very useful. And I also, when I, pardon me for interrupting sure. you, Joe, uh, to that last point, I will tell counsel um, in session with their clients sitting there that from time to time, I may pull counsel out and ask to speak to them separately to help expedite the process. I tell the client there's nothing unusual about it. 
that if we were meeting in a conference center, it would be the equivalent of my going down the hall, knocking on the door and saying, can I see counsel a moment? So that is something that they expect to happen. And when I'm doing it remotely, I have breakout rooms set up so that I can whisk counsel away. I will usually text to let the attorney know before I pull them away through the magic of Zoom. And that way they know and their client knows that they're about to be pulled into another room. That, that's, that's terrific. Uh, in, in terms of timing, Megan, I'll be very fast. If it's early in the mediation or early in litigation or pre-litigation, um, I think there needs to be a discussion about how the process of mediation may be different. You actually may, I'm not a huge fan of opening statements in mediations. I think that they can be distracting and sometimes counterproductive. But if you're pre-litigation, the parties genuinely probably don't have a thorough understanding of the other side's position. And then it may be more useful there. And I think the mediator has to be having a conversation with counsel about expectations. This isn't a chest thumping exercise. This is lay the facts out, lay the law out that you think supports your position and be done. Um, but, but so I think timing is going to affect process of the mediation some at least from my perspective. And then lastly, in business cases more than any other case, I don't care what time it is in the night or morning, I do not leave without a term sheet. Uh, business people are used to reducing things to contracts, to agreements, that's just how they think, that's their orientation. And I think you are doing everyone a disservice, including yourself after the hard work you've put in to get a case to the finish line. If you do not take that extra even if it's an hour or so, to nail down a term sheet. Uh, do not leave. I tell counsel in advance, budget your time to understand that we are not leaving this mediation once we've settled until we have a term sheet that everyone has signed. All, all excellent advice. I thank you all so much. I'm also taking notes here. Um, the last topic that I would like to discuss, and I would like everybody to chime in, um, is the different types of proposals by it has their own style and it's, I think it's helpful for folks to hear about what has worked or not worked for people. Vice Chancellor Slice, would you like to go first on that one? Yeah, um, I, I, I will say that um, in my experience, I, I try to uh, delay as long as possible being in a more evaluative mode. Um, because I think the moment you start to evaluate um, is the moment you begin to burn your powder as a mediator. So I like to try to develop trust with the parties. Even sophisticated business people are human beings. They have human reactions, so they need to trust you before they're going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. So um, I call them the anti-mediations. I think when mediators begin to drop proposals down and begin to evaluate early in the process without really having a feel for where they can get people potentially to go, that that can actually throw a hand grenade into the whole thing. Uh, to me, mediators actually giving proposals and, and beginning to, to sort of get to that degree of evaluation, uh, that is an impasse breaker. That is a, I think we're not going to get there the old-fashioned way, so the mediator has to be more proactive 
And that, for me at least, tends to be much, much later, in fact, probably at what I'm viewing, the near end of the process. And that's timing. And then uh, Gail, I think, is the master at the, at least from what I've heard, of the mediator's proposal and how to actually finesse it. So I think uh, it'd be great to hear from her. And I know Don does it, too. But I uh, I agree. Uh, I do it, but I think Gail is the master here. So uh, let's make sure we hear from Gail, then I'll chime in. Well, I don't know that I'm a master, but um, I think council are used to the fact that when they get to impasse, I'm not going to give up on them. <laughs> so I could do it in a couple of different ways, but I absolutely agree with Joe that you can't do it too early because you want people to feel engaged. You don't want them to feel imposed upon and they have to have earned um, that you have to have earned their their trust and their respect. So when we are at impasse, um, the most common way that I will do it is um, do it as a traditional mediator's proposal, which is blind to each side. And I will tell them that I'm going to give a number. It's not necessarily what the case is worth. It's what I think I can settle it for. So it's important that I've learned enough information from both sides to do it. And then when we're in session, I'll say, I'm going to put you on the clock and I'll come back in 10 minutes. I'll give you a number. And then your answer is yes, no, or I need more time. And I do it that way because I often get two yeses while we're in session. If you've got the right people in the room and they are able to get it resolved that day. Uh, if somebody says yes and the other person says they need more time, then I'll just give them an expiration date um, and time. And if we get a no, it doesn't mean I stop. I'll keep uh, going on. Sometimes I have to do it as a mediator suggested range of negotiation earlier in the process prior to impasse if we're not moving quickly enough. But again, if it's at the end and we are at impasse, I'll throw in a mediator's proposal. But I let council know before I'm doing it. So I don't tip the scales on a, in a way that they don't, um, don't welcome and so that their clients know what's coming. Great, uh, Vice Chancellor Parsons, I'll let you have the last word on this before we wrap up for the day. Thank you. I agree with uh, definitely with what everything that's been said. I would point out that I'm, uh, and I think my uh, colleagues view it the same way, <coughs> that if one of the parties says no, then uh, that's what I report to the parties that we did not reach agreement on the mediator's proposal. Always they want to know, well, did the other one say no also or, or yes? And I, we, you don't get that. You do not get that information so that we don't have the, the sense that somebody accepted an offer or was willing to accept an offer, uh, some sort of thing uh, like that. Uh, what's different in the way I operate uh, a little bit uh, from what Gail's talking about is in some instances, well, two things happen. One, if it's very early in the litigation, I'm, I work hard sometimes with the associate, with the benefit of an associate to try to get a range that I think would, in my head, of what would be uh, uh, appropriate, fair for both sides, fair in quotes, uh, for a final kind of a settlement, but never throw that out until the very end. And only, and only in my case, if both sides agree. If one or the other side, and usually it's the council, does not want me to make a mediator's proposal, then I normally will not make uh, a mediator's proposal. And I do that because I've had some cases with very experienced insurance counsel and things like that. They are very, very experienced negotiators in their own right. 
and I'm willing to go with their assessment that uh, I'm throwing a hand grenade into their situation, that they'll get to a, a resolution. The other, the other, the last thing I'll say is that there are situations, especially when the case is before litigation is even filed or at the very earliest stage of litigation, where all I know is somebody has five counts of their complaint, various theories of, but I don't know anything about the facts and I really don't have any basis to come up with a, a number. And in those situations, I just say that I'm not comfortable. Uh, making a mediator's proposal. Great. Um, does anybody else have anything they'd like to add before we, we finish for today? I absolutely agree that um, if a party doesn't want me to do it, I won't do it because I want to be really sensitive to, again, there may be things that I don't know, even though I asked them to tell me the secret stuff. And I don't want to put put my finger on the, on the scale, my thumb on the scale, if um, there's a better way to do it. I, I, I'm in the same Great. boat. And, and I uh, just one last comment in this virtual era. Uh, I've found that um, the technology is really pretty good and you can get the benefit of like a Zoom Plus if you use, sometimes it's a third party. They're usually not that expensive. They're one, a couple names are Court Scribes or Veritext. And uh, I've, I've got other names and it's local maybe to my area, but to others where they handle everything uh, about what the kind of thing Gail's talking about, that when I finish talking with one side, I don't have to text the other side to say, okay, I'm ready for you now. I've got somebody there who's like the pilot and they they take care of all that. And they, they have in their head, I've got six different meeting rooms for different kind of breakouts and they they organize, they, they take care of the traffic. Uh, so that can, keep your mind as a mediator just on, let's uh, see if we can't make a resolution. Great, well, thank you all again so much. As always, the time just flies by and the information was just so great and so useful. And I really appreciate it, Judge Jandler, Vice Chancellor Parsons, Vice Chancellor Seitz for taking time out of your day to join us today. So thank you. Thank you again to thank Vanessa. You and Doug and to you, Judge Adams, for everything that you've done to make this available to the members. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.